Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to a special edition of Arkansas AgCast. This week, we put together some of our favorite interviews from a very busy 2021. In this selection, you'll hear our conversation with FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr on the challenges and necessity of broadband expansion, a look at estate planning for farmers with tax and estate planning attorney Trav Baxter, a visit with Mary Bone on the site of her Pulaski County fruit and vegetable farm, and former University of Arkansas Distinguished Professor Dr. Andrew Sharpley, one of the founders of the Arkansas Discovery Farms program, shares memories and stories from his long career in crop, soil, and environmental sciences. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for joining us, Commissioner Carr. Oh, Uh, really glad to do it. Thank you. uh, Is this your first time in Hot Springs? You know, I've passed through Arkansas before, but this is my first time down in Hot Springs. We're having a great time so far. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. Uh, I just want to get started by talking a little bit about what you will be talking about today. Um, can you give us a, a tease of what, what you'll be discussing? Yeah. So, look, you know, high-speed connectivity, having affordable access to the Internet is table stakes in today's economy for educating our kids, for accessing health care, uh, particularly for America's farmers and ranchers. And obviously that's a big industry here uh, in Arkansas. And the story is a bit mixed across the country, really. There are many, many pockets of this country where we've made tremendous progress bridging the digital divide over the last couple of years. If you look back, for instance, in 2016, we put up something like 708 new cell sites total in the country that year. Well, flash forward to 2019, and we had 46,000 new cell sites go up in this country. And that's because at the federal level, we were streamlining regulations, we were getting the rules right, and that helped unleash a massive build. But it's been uneven, particularly around the edges. There's still too many parts of this country, too many Americans that don't have connectivity. So the good news with respect to that is we are right now seeing an unprecedented infusion of federal and state dollars being directed towards efforts to bridge the digital divide. At the moment, the challenge is less the money, and it is more how do we coordinate among local, state, and federal leaders to make sure that money goes in the ground. That's why this Farm Bureau's Connectivity Summit is coming at the exact right moment and bringing together all of the stakeholders to make sure that the American people get the bang for the buck of these dollars that are being infused here uh, and that they go into the ground. And so is that a, a concern, is making sure that the, the money gets to the right projects and is, is funneled correctly and, and, and everything is tracked accordingly. I mean, is that a, a concern at the federal level? I think that's one of the biggest issues. You know, look, there's always a lot of challenges. One is infrastructure in terms of the regulations. And it frankly cost too much and took too long to build internet infrastructure in this country. And at the federal level, we spent the last three or four years streamlining those rules. We've got that in a pretty good spot. The next challenge was how do we have the money that's needed to build out internet connectivity. Look, you've got uh, costs in the ballpark of $30,000 to run a mile of fiber. And that makes a lot of business sense when you're downtown in a big city. But when you're in parts of the country that have one or two people per square mile, uh, that $30,000 is not going to pencil out for the private sector. So we need an infusion of federal support to do that. And now, particularly after COVID, when everybody realizes the value of connectivity, there's a lot of political support support for spending money on infrastructure. So, yes, the point we're at now is how do we take that money and make sure it doesn't get uh, sidetracked either to overbuilding places that already have service or upgrading gold plating places that already have pretty good broadband? How do we focus 
that money in areas that have zero megabits per second. And this is particularly important for farm country. So a lot of people wonder, well, there's not a lot of people there. Why do you need high-speed connectivity uh, across America's farms and ranches? And I'll tell you, here's the reason. We now have the technology that can pull 18 gigabits worth of data off of a single plant. This is imaging. This is soil sensors. So you can take all that data, and that's what we need to get uh, productive, efficient farming today. Well, 18 gigabits of data, that's about two times the amount of data that the average smartphone user uh, consumes every single month. So when you look out on you know, Arkansas's soybeans, rice fields, every single plant, think of it as a smartphone. And that will start to give you a sense for the data needs and why we need high-speed coverage to blanket this country, not just concentrated population centers. Yeah, and I think that is something we've seen that people don't take into account. A lot of the farm equipment these days is very, you know, technology dependent. And not only that, but then you have people dealing with education, you know, their, their kids going to school in these rural areas and having some difficulty connecting even with schools. Um, we heard a lot during this uh, COVID period of kids going to the local McDonald's just so they can connect, you know, and, and do some of their schoolwork. So there's lots of challenges in those areas. Um, what's the, you, do you have any uh, good examples of who's doing this right or, you know, states that have really attacked this in, in certain ways that you've seen that are models? Well, you're right that, uh Combines, tractors today, they are essentially mini data centers. I mean, obviously, they have the ability to drive themselves. I've been on uh, many of them, and you see the amount of connectivity that they have and that they need. And you're right, during COVID-19, parents were driving kids to McDonald's to use the Wi-Fi hotspots, and we need to get the job done so that we don't see that anymore. I think one thing that Arkansas is positioned very well with, and I was at an event uh, just recently, and then obviously at this summit as well with Governor Hutchinson, is they've put in place a grant um, uh, body that can take federal or state dollars and award that money to broadband projects. So I think that's an important model that the state is doing right. I think broadband mapping is another key. Uh, Congress directed the FCC over a year ago, gave us $100 million uh, after that to stand up nationwide broadband maps to help states, uh, the federal government, accurately identify, right, here's where we're missing connectivity. Let's put money there. And until we get those maps completed, that's a bit of a choke point with respect to federal funding because I don't want uh, to be pouring billions of dollars, and that's what we've got, billions of dollars, uh, not knowing exactly where there's connectivity and where there's not. We've got to identify with precision the unconnected communities. And I know that's something you've talked a bit about is the mapping process. Where do things stand in the mapping process? And is there anything states can do to help with that process? Well, unfortunately, it's a bit of a black box right now, and it shouldn't be. So I work at the FCC, and uh, – uh, at the beginning of the year in January or February, you know, I asked our new leadership, when are we going to get these maps done? And the answer I got was not this year. Uh, I then called for the FC to complete the maps this fall, which is about now. Uh, but we haven't gotten any indication of when the FC's new leadership is going to complete that. Now, it's a hard project. We've got staff working very, very hard to get it done. I, I don't begrudge what they're doing. I just think we should be more upfront with our timeline because then that will decide can I wait another month for this map and then use that to drive my uh, state effort? Or is it going to be another year down the road when I maybe got to stand up my own state initiative to uh, look at mapping? But ideally, we'd be running the mapping solely at the federal level because we want one map that's accurate. We don't need a lot of inaccurate maps. Right. Um, is there anything 
you know, people can do at the, you know, grassroots level to help, uh, you know, move that process along? Or is there anything that you want to hear from people out there when you're getting feedback? Or what's the process there for people to say, we, we want to be a part of this, and what can we do to help speed yeah, I think, you know, along? You know, state reps, uh, you know, just everyday people, yeah, speaking up and sort of asking where we are in that process. But I think the most important thing is what we're going to do here today, which is you're bringing federal leaders, local leaders, state leaders together, make sure we know who each other are, that we're talking with each other, that we're on the same page. I mean, events like this, um, you, know, you may be able to see it in a tangible way, but this is going to make a big difference to make sure that we move quickly and efficiently with internet builds. Great. Well, we appreciate you being here today. Look forward to hearing from you later, and thank you for taking time to join us. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, I am so happy to welcome uh, Trav Baxter to the Arkansas AgCast today. Uh, Trav, if you did not have the opportunity to join us at um, Arkansas Farm Bureau State Convention uh, last week, then um, you probably do not know that uh, Trav Baxter presented a session on succession planning for the farm. Uh, Trav, you are an attorney, a tax and estate planning attorney uh, at Mitchell Williams Law Firm. You specialize in agriculture law, right? That's correct. Uh, what else? What else might might our audience find interesting about you? So I've, I've uh, been at Mitchell Williams for almost fifteen years now, but. Uh, Primary practice is wills, estates, and trust. I do a lot of agricultural law just because I have a family background um, mm-hmm. uh, in farming, southeast Arkansas and Deshaies County. I, a fourth generation family farm down there, and you know, just got pulled into agricultural law, and, and I've enjoyed it ever since. Yeah. So, as somebody who has uh, managed to turn their public relations career into a focus in agriculture, I can tell you that once you kind of dip your toe in. It just pulls you in, and you want to spend all your time there. That's right. That's exactly right. It's one of my favorite practices in, in law, and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks for joining us today. Like I said, we're, we're kind of working our way through a series. Uh, we want to do something different this year. Uh, at State Convention, we have um, workshop a number of workshops, uh, professional development-type workshops throughout the event. And uh, this year, we decided to bring all of those to the Arkansas AgCast afterwards. So if you weren't able to attend or maybe you're, you're, you're interested in maybe attending next year, you can, you can get a feel for t- some of the type of uh, professional development opportunities that we have at the, at the convention. And I just so happened to host the session that um, Trav uh, presented. Uh, so he and I get to hang out again today on the, um, on the AgCast. So Trav, I, you have put together a list of sort of nine things you need to know or nine things you need to do uh, in order to have a, a good succession plan put together for your farm, right? That's correct. Yeah, and this uh, involves everything from last will and testament, living will, uh, beneficiary uh, business, um reviewing you know i don't want to i don't want to go over all the list now but what i thought what what we could do today is have you sort of walk one by one down the list and give a little bit of explanation to it and uh you know i may ask questions here or there does that sound good that sounds great i have all right well let's kick it off with the first one okay i'll uh, i'll dive in and I'll, i'll give a little bit of an overview real quick so yeah um succession planning you know lack of succession planning is one of the main reasons that family farms don't pass to the next generation it's extremely mm. important and one of the main pieces of the puzzle in a succession plan is the estate plan and the estate plan is generally making sure 
that your assets are passing down to the next generation, mm-hmm. you know, to the extent that you can free of as much tax debt, so on. So things happen the way you want them to, because one thing I always tell people is, and I think I mentioned this in the presentation is if you don't have a, an estate plan mm-hmm. and you don't line it out, uh, then the state of Arkansas is going to tell you what your estate plan is. You know what? You took that one off my, that, question off my list because i remember you saying that i was kind of taken aback yeah i don't want to dive in already but like can you tell us what that is yeah and it's generally not what you think it would be so yeah you know most people think that if they've been married they have kids and if they pass away everything that they have is going to go to their spouse Mm -hmm. well that's not necessarily the case Mm -hmm. sure if assets are titled jointly you know so on things will automatically pass to your spouse but if you have an asset that's in your individual name and you pass away the likelihood under Arkansas law is that it's going to go one third, you know, that's a generality to your spouse mm-hmm. and two thirds to your kids. Oh, wow. So a lot of times that is not known. Um, and also the other thing too, is, you know, a lot of people say, well, I want this asset to go to this child and this asset to go to this child, you know, this piece of property over here and they'll agree on it and they'll be just fine. You know, yeah. they know what I want. Yeah. Well that, you know, sure that could turn out fine, but most of the time it really doesn't. And so you got to be really careful on that to make sure that you actually line out on paper, you know, what you want to happen. So yeah. It's important. Yeah. No, that's a good one. Well, thank you for that, uh, for that setup. I think it, you make the case strongly right off the bat on why you need to put one of these succession plans together. Absolutely. Well, let's, uh, the first one is uh last will and Testament. That's right. So, Generally, with an estate plan, and I'm going to combine two of these, there's two tracks that you can go down. You can have a last will and testament, and I'm just going to use a married couple as an example. Okay. And you can say, listen, everything goes to my spouse. Upon the death of both of us, everything goes to our kids. And you can line that out in your last will and testament, um, and that's great. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that you have with just a last will and testament, though, is you've got to go through the probate process upon the second death, okay? Mm -hmm. So you've got to file your your will with uh, with the court, Um, It's got to go through probate. It can be time-consuming, expensive, you know, and sometimes people want to avoid that, especially Mm -hmm. in a day where privacy is very important to people. And some of the things that you file at the courthouse, people can go see those things, okay? Mm -hmm. So you got to watch out there. And so that's the first item. Last will and testament can provide you with passing your assets down to the people you want. It works. Mm -hmm. But there's an element, do you want to avoid probate and do you want to make things private? And if you do, that gets to the second item a revocable trust, okay? And so if you have a revocable trust in place of a last will and testament, it does the same thing. It allows you to pass your assets down to your family members the way that you want to, but if you do it the right way, you can avoid the probate process and a revocable trust is private. So there are benefits, you know, to doing that, but Mm -hmm. if you just want a last will and testament, it certainly does work. Yeah, okay. Well, that sounds good. And you, you mentioned funding, going along with that revocable will and trust. you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So if you set up a revocable trust, sometimes known as a living trust, there are a few different names for it. Um, you create it. You say, this is how I want my assets to pass, you know, upon my death. Well, you have to make sure that your assets line up with your trust. And so that means, you know, your bank accounts, your investment accounts, um, your house, all of those things need to line up with the trust. And that's called the funding process. And what I mean by that is, you know, you might want to say, listen, I have an investment account that's titled in my name. I'm going to create a trust and I'm going to retitle the investment account in the name of my trust. Mm-hmm. Um, or I have a checking account and I really don't want to retitle it, 
but I want to make sure it goes to my trust. And so I'm going to put a payable on death provision on the checking account. So if something happens to me, it ends up in the trust. Mm -hmm. So, so long as you go through the funding process and you go down each one of your assets and make sure that you line those up with the trust, you've kind of done the work on the front end Mm -hmm. to make sure that if you pass away, everything is going to move smoothly as opposed to not doing that and just either not having a state plan at all or even having just a will and having to have your heirs go through the process at that time. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Good good info to have. Uh, What's the next thing on your list? Yeah, so a lot of people think that an estate plan really is just for making sure I'm passing the my assets down to the people I want them to go to. Right. And it is. I mean, that's a primary purpose. But however, there is also the purpose of an estate plan during your lifetime. And so the next item on the list is a general durable power of attorney. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so a general durable power of attorney is if I'm incapacitated and I need someone to be able to pay bills or file tax returns or do those daily, you know, financial you know, actions, mm-hmm. you know, that are going to need to take place if I can't do them. Mm-hmm. The general durable power attorney allows you to appoint someone to do those things for you. Mm-hmm. If you don't have it in place, then you could end up in a position that if you become incapacitated, a guardian has to be appointed over your estate mm-hmm. and you have to go to court to do that, which is a time consuming and expensive process that nobody likes to go through. Right. Right. And may, yeah. So we dealt with this recently with within my family and think thankfully we had the power of attorney uh set up but you know i mean you're talking really simple tasks cashing a check sometimes even you know making sure the insurance copay is taken care of i mean really medial tasks even that this allows you to be able to do right absolutely and here's the issue i mean if you become incapacitated and you don't have this and you need to go do that quickly the problem is you can't, okay? Mm-hmm. And so you've got to go to court, and the court has to appoint a guardian. And there are provisions that you can take to make it move quickly, but quickly is not immediate. And so and quickly got, in the court of law is not right, quickly yeah. in our mind, right? Yeah. Every, everybody knows <laughs> that, yeah. So, I mean, so having this simple document in place, I mean, it is extremely simple to put this in place, will save you, I mean, save you and your family a lot of headache. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good one. Yeah. And I'm assuming before we move on, you can make changes to that at any point. You can. So that's a good, that's a good question. So your general durable power of attorney, you know, there's also two kinds. Okay. So a lot of people say, well, you know, I really don't want to give authority, you know, over my actions to somebody else right now. And some people say, I want to, I don't really mind whoever I'm appointing. I want them to be able to do this immediately for me. Mm -hmm. And so there are ways that you can, you know, build into the general durable power of attorney that, if you're deemed incapacitating, we have a doctor's letter, you know, uh-huh. that you're incapacitated, then it goes into effect then. You can always change it until you become incapacitated. At that point in time, it's in stone. Oh, nice. So so this person will have the power if I become incapacitated, but not a minute before. That's right. Okay, interesting. That's uh, a little security blanket that folks might enjoy. It is, yeah. And I normally tell people when they sign these, I say, listen, you know, I know that this is who you want right now, but, you know, if tomorrow, you know, you go to sleep and you wake up in a cold sweat and say, oh, I don't want that person to act on my behalf. You can change it. Just yeah. And we can get it updated for you. Call Trav. He'll That's take right. care of it. I'll take care of it. All right. Awesome. Okay. So if we're moving in order here and you'll tell me if we're not, but yep. uh, beneficiary designations. That's I think, right. Yeah. Yeah. So this lines up with, um, you know, we talked about the last will and testament, the revocable trust. Um, beneficiary designations are really important. Um 
overall because so for example your life insurance mm-hmm. it's going to have a beneficiary designation your retirement account is going to have a beneficiary designation you must go through and make sure that those beneficiary designations line up with your plan because time and time again we see that people don't update those and those assets life insurance in particular when you get it a long long time ago right you don't change your beneficiary those be- those beneficiaries are not who you want anymore and we have seen people that pass away and those proceeds go to where we know it really wasn't intended, but it is what it is. Yeah. And so you got to be careful on that. Yeah. I'm thinking about this. Uh, obviously, it has, you know, it has its place on the farm, but I'm also thinking about that as um, maybe a spouse or somebody like that who works off the farm. I mean, we, we, we see a lot of farmers, even in our farm family of the year, our district winners, uh, where they've got you know, day jobs, as it were, um, you know, look, if you sat down and did, did that paperwork, n- noting your beneficiaries 20 years ago, when you started that job, uh, chances are you may not even remember who that was. So it's a good, good, good idea to check that in e- even outside of the farm, check yeah. in on that. Right. And things change. Cause sometimes you get a life insurance policy for a particular reason. Say for example, you know, you have a son that works on the farm and you know, a daughter that lives in, you know, Virginia, and she, mm-hmm. and she doesn't work on want, want to work on the farm, and you know you've got a life insurance policy in place, so you equalize her out if you're giving the farm to your son. You know, okay, mm-hmm. um, and say, say for example, son doesn't want to work there. Something happens at the farm, or daughter actually comes back. You know, you mm-hmm. got to constantly watch your fact pattern and your plan to make sure that it still does what you want it to do. Because right. otherwise, I mean, you're ending up at a position like you were in without a plan. It's not going to do what you want you know, wanted to do. All right. Used a word that perked my ears up. Fact pattern. Can you define that for me? Yeah. So, you know, fact pattern in regard to your specific set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, every fact pattern is different. And so that's really important. So generally how we approach estate planning and succession planning is I sit down and I say, listen, you know, we need to just start talking Mm -hmm. and I need to really figure out exactly, you know, the dynamics in your family I need to figure out the ownership of, you know, your business, your assets, all those things. Mm -hmm. And we come up with your specific set of facts and circumstances. And then from there, we go and figure out what your goals are, you know, your objectives and how to achieve those. And the estate plan is one of the ways that we help to achieve your goals. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Now, one of the things that I really liked about what you did in the, in the workshop uh, is you had sort of this family anecdote or scenario set out so this child which i thought was really familiar to the stories that i hear so this child um moved away and doesn't really want to work on the farm this child is sort of interested in moving back home but doesn't want to do that right now this child you know and i'm saying child but descendant i guess well, it's funny because i say child a lot i'm talking about 50 and 60 year olds and that's what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. this child really true. wants to stay here and yeah. work on the farm and never left the farm so you're you're telling me like you know you work inside a lot of these different family dynamics yeah. and family set i'm sure even um uh to the to a degree of different marriages or different Absolutely. different types of family arrangements and things like that, right? That's right. That's okay. exactly right. And you have to look out for everybody. I mean, you have your children that you want to look out for, but you know, they have relationships as well. Mm-hmm. And so and sometimes you don't want to take care of those relationships. Sometimes you do. And so you have to make sure that you line all that out and think about it. And listen, I mean, 
I understand that, you know, talking about it and looking at it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you have an approach and you follow the approach, it's really not. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. It, you could really boil it down to get to where you want to get. And then when you do it, you know, you feel good about it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I hear you talk a lot about is sort of this monitoring going back and, 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 my, and if you, like you said, if you've got the fact pattern in place, that sort of helps you do some more real time monitoring without having to come sit down with you again and, or, or, you know, do some, take some extra steps. It kind of gets easier to self maintenance. It does. It does. And you can pick it up and you can look at it and, you know, it's funny. I mean, I tell people to look at it, you know, at least every couple of years to make sure things haven't changed. Uh-huh. I have some people that come in and have looked at theirs in 10 years and they pull it out and we start going through it and they say, I left that to who? <laughs> and, you know, so you got to watch out for that. I mean, it, and I see that very often, and they, they're like, yeah, that's not the case anymore, so we need to change that. Have you been sitting down with my dad? <laughs> Is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, but that you bring up a good point, though. Uh, so when people leave your office and, and talking to you, they've got a document. I mean, they're going to have a document that they can check back on. Going and, to, yes. and that they're, they're sort of controlling and looking over on their own. Right. right. I had someone come in today and, and they, we did a review of theirs and they had already gone through it and said, we need to update some things here. We worked on it together. We're going to take it, update it, you know, and they're good to go. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's keep, uh, let's keep moving down the list here. So the next one ha- has to do with personal property. Yeah. So a lot of times when we do your revocable trust or your will, you know, you, for example, you know, our, our example we use in the presentation, you um, I want to equalize my kids. I want each of them to get a third of my estate, so on. Um, but there may be certain items that you want to go to certain people, say a ring or guns or, you know, whatever that might be. Yeah. And so you can, in Arkansas, you can have a separate list, uh, a gift by a separate list for tangible personal property that you can update from time to time. As oh, long nice. as you sign it and date it and refer it back to the document, we provide that to you. Um, that that makes sure that, you know, you don't have to go and amend your trust or your will every time, you know, you want to leave the couch to somebody else. You know, you can you can do that, and it makes it very easy to do so. That's one thing I would recommend is if you do it the right way, it's legally binding. If you don't, then it's not. And I'll <laughs> have to say, personal property, I mean, it can be a huge mess if you put a lot of siblings and their spouses in a room together. And they have to start selecting things. Oh, I bet we've all been through it or know someone who has. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, or it can be a good experience. I mean, yeah. it's what you uh, what you make of it. You never think anything's going to go wrong, but I mean, you just don't know. It, it, it's better. People always take it a lot more, you know, a, a lot better if you've lined it out for them. Yeah. You made, you made this point several times at State Convention, and, and the point was, like, you really don't know how people are going to react to a situation until you get there. That's right. And if you're the person who's concerned and or writing the estate plan or, you know, uh, you probably aren't going to know what, <laughs> what's happening. So, it, you know, in order to best control that, it's the you planning guess, piece, yeah. right? And, and, and that's a really good point because, you know, if you say, listen, my children get along, I'm not worried about it. Well, one of the ways to ensure that they're going to continue to get along is if you line it out. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. And so, because if you don't line it out, then you risk, you know, a break in the relationship and you don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely not. It's kind of, uh, you're still able to parent from, from beyond a little bit, right? (laughs) You're still able to help them, help them learn and and succeed. Well, cool. All right. Well, we've got a few, few left, uh, 
Living will. This one's interesting. Yeah. So living yeah. will is very important. So if you are permanently unconscious, you have an irreversible condition, and I'll just generalize this, you're going to be put on life support. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can say, you know, one of three things. Um, I don't want to be on life support in that situation if I'm mm-hmm. deemed, you know, to be in that condition. Um, I do want to be on life support. Or I want to appoint someone to make that decision for me, you know, providing them with some guidelines. And so this is a very important one because a lot of people have to deal with a parent generally, mm-hmm. you know, or a loved one that's on, you know, has a serious issue that is going to be put on life support. You know, so a living will is extremely important to have in place. In connection with that, the durable power of attorney for health care, which is sometimes called a proxy or directive. Right. Also extremely important to have in place because if you don't appoint someone to act on your behalf for health care decisions, then just like we said with the appointing a guardian for your financial purposes, a guardian has to be appointed for you for over your person, which is for your health care. Okay. And so similar deal. If you don't have this, you potentially risk having to go to court Mm -hmm. and having someone appointed by the court to do those things for you. And so, these two documents right here, living will and durable power of attorney for healthcare, are very important. They have a little bit of a different, um, you know, context, obviously, because it's healthcare and it's not financial related, like we've been talking about. But they go with the plan, and they're absolutely necessary. Yeah, and I, here we are again at a point where I think is really relevant to anybody within a listening uh, distance of this podcast. Um, but there are some. Uh, you know, there's some nuances that come along with with everything we've talked about so far as it applies to farms and ranches. And, yep. you know, we know a lot of farmers that have other businesses, whether they be trucking entities and things like that. All, all these things um, really have some nuances that that you want somebody who's experienced with agriculture to, to help. Yeah, you absolutely. There, there are a lot of nuances, especially when you get to, I mean, a lot of these things run constant among a lot of people, but when you get to the the business-related side of things yeah. or whatever else it may be. Even the fact patterns in terms of, you know, when you're dealing with family farms, I mean, all those things are, are specific. And so it's good to have a little bit of background and know, you know, seen experiences and things happen over the years. I mean, it generally right. helps out. Yeah, right. Okay, so we covered we covered living will and durable power of attorney for healthcare. And if you were listening and uh, paying attention to the second one, with this, which is that general – uh, power of attorney, durable power of attorney. This is this is separate from that. That's right. This, this is, is the healthcare side of that. Yeah, that's right. Okay, got a couple left. Uh, one of those is guardian designations for minor children. That's right. Now I'm going to assume that godparents just telling someone they're a godparent or something like that probably doesn't come into play here. Yeah, I don't no, know. Yeah. You can it, correct me if I'm work. wrong. And so <laughs> yeah, so I will explain what it means. So generally. Um, Younger people, the way that I can get them in to get their estate plan done is when they have kids. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. the guardian guardian designations for minor children is, is a huge deal um, because if something happens to, you know, both parents, who's going to take care of your kids? Right. Who are they going to go live with? And, you know, a lot of times, you know, each parent will have their own parents, i.e. grandparents, and, you know, and all the grandparents and everybody are involved, you know, with the kids' lives and, and so on. And so... You can designate who you would like to serve as guardian over your minor children if something happens to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
it's a preference and it has to be approved by the court in the best interest. But generally, if you put it down in your documents, it will be in your last will and testament. If you put it down, unless there's some reason to deviate from that, the court is not going to appoint someone else. Sure. Similar deal as personal property, even though, I mean, it obviously different, but similar in terms of if you line it out, then most times people don't get upset with it because Mm -hmm. otherwise someone will say, well, I want to be the guardian or I want to be the guardian. It's a huge burden, but I mean, you know, it's generally grandkids or whoever else. It could be, um, could be family friends that are good, you know, taking care of kids and you want your kids to go live with them. A lot of times people say, well, in the guardian of my minor children going to be who I appoint as my backup trustee, my successor trustee. Mm -hmm. And I say it could be, but, you know, some people are good at finances, some people are good at taking care of kids, and some people are good at both. Yeah, And sure. so you got to be really careful in terms of who you appoint, and this is a really big decision. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. I mean, um, and thinking through this, this goes back to, uh, you know, I hate to make this comparison, but back to something we were talking about earlier with personal property, like you're helping people get along and and and, and you know, do the right thing. Not not implying that anybody wouldn't, but you're helping people make the right decisions um, even even after you're unable to do that, you know, physically, I guess. That's right. You, ha- you have a greater chance of success if you line all this out. Yeah, that's a great point. I- I'll tell you another prompt you talked about when people have children. Um, for m- my wife and I, uh, it was an international trip you know just being abroad i think brings some greater sense of responsibility to some of that stuff too absolutely and i mean generally if you go abroad or you go out of town or whatever that might be you know a lot of times you want to make sure that whoever's keeping your kids you know you've got it lined out you know with their pediatrician or you know you've got something on file you know that they're taking care of that'll make you feel better too that's even a temporary document absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. we've done that. Okay, cool. All right, last one, periodic review of the estate plan. We hit on this a little bit, but I bet you can give us some pretty tangible advice. We did, yeah. So estate plan, you know, it's not a one-and-done kind of thing. Um, you know, you wish it would be, but but life doesn't work that way. And so, you know, things change, tax laws change, you know, family relationships change. Um, you know, new people are added to families. You know, some people pass away. You have to periodically review your plan and some people say, well, uh, you know, how often should I review it? You know, how many years? And, you know, there is no set in stone rule on that. Normally what I tell mm-hmm. people is, listen, you know, if some kind of life cycle event happens, you know, someone gets married, someone passes away, you know, things like that, you probably want to pick it up and look at it. Um, but at least every, you know, two to three years, I would generally pick it up and look at it and make sure that it's still, it, I mean, it won't take you very long. Sure. Just make sure that it still reads the way you want. And most of the time when people pick it up, I mean, I say most of the time, 50%, I kind of want to tweak something, or maybe I don't. So it's good to look at it and make sure you put all the effort in on the front end to get it there. Just keep it it in good stead. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sort of concludes your your list. And these are are all parts and pieces that should be within an estate plan, right? Yeah, they are parts and pieces that will be within an estate plan. And they also line up, as I said, the estate plan lines up as a tool for the overall succession plan of a family farming business. Right. You know, whether it's operational, whether it's landowning, whether it's both, you know, the estate plan has to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And there are other elements of a, a, a succession plan as well. We talked about some of these in the presentation, such mm-hmm. as a buy-sell agreement between owners of a business. Those things also come into play as tools, but the estate plan 
is an integral part. And I mean, it's, it's a very important thing to get in place. You know, you make a good point, Trav. So I would consider these sort of a, a state plan 101, right? You know, somebody like yourself who's been involved in this with, you know, within the agriculture uh, industry specifically can help people, you know, there's certainly many points that could be added to this list is, you know, as you get in and understand and learn about the business and you see things like a buy sell agreement, things like that, that may need to be in place. But that's, for me, that's what struck me is, you know, that's why it's so important to have, um, you know, an expert, somebody who, who, who does this really, frankly, for a living, you know, uh, to be able to help out um, along the way, and uh, and I think that's I think that's really important. Something that we didn't really cover, but and you know I'm, I guess I'm I'm getting to that midlife age where I've I've had conversations and been a caretaker and things like this a lot. Um, I'm just curious. Do you have any tips on? I would qualify this as a as a tough conversation. Right. Do you have any tips on starting that? And I, I hear so many people, I say so many people, I hear people say to me, well, mom just doesn't really want to talk about the sad things like death or dad really doesn't want to imagine not being on the farm. Do you have, have you seen something that sort of helps us get there? You know? Yeah. And, it, and I mean, that's a great question. It, it depends on the personality, of course. Uh-huh. I mean, and some people like, you know, Tough love, and some people, you know, it doesn't. It's, so, for example, of, yeah. I've, I've had it work where I've told people, listen, I mean, if, if you don't provide your plan, I mean, one's going to be handed to you, and it ain't going to be what you want. Sometimes mm-hmm. that works. Yeah. You know, uh, other times, you know, it's not that way, and it is a very sensitive conversation, and you got to be careful of it. And I think normally, you know, the way that I see it work when children are talking to parents about making sure they have their stuff in place is, listen, you know, I know how hard you work for this. You know, I know how much it means to you. We just want to make sure it's taken care of. And normally it works much better if all the kids are on the same page and do it, you know, together, um, as opposed to, you know, one of them going in and trying to push the conversation or somehow they're all involved. So the parents know, listen, I mean, this is a a common theme that they have to want to make sure this is set up and they're going to help. And I think that that goes a long way right there. Yeah. Maybe taking a list like this or this podcast and sending it to that loved one and saying, hey, it don't know where, where you are on this process, but here's right. some good advice from Trav and Arkansas Farm Bureau. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes you could tell them, listen, I mean, and, and, and to be honest, you know, if you don't have this in place, you know, say, for example, you become incapacitated, you know, how are we going to – it's going to be hard to take care of you. I mean, we're going to have mm-hmm. to go to court, and we're going to have to do do all these things, and we really need to get this in place. Yeah, yeah. Generally, Arkansans don't like outsiders coming in telling them what to do or how to do it. So maybe that's the motivation point too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> we've got pride, you know, so yeah. you don't want that to happen. And um, exactly. You can cut that off if you, if you take the time to sit down and do your plan. Yeah. That's a good point. All right. I'm going to throw a couple at you that, that um, might maybe surprises or we didn't talk about, but uh, one thing that I always like to do when I, when I have the, you know, good fortune to have, have an expert on the ad cast, is to do some myth busting. So I'll ask you a question I, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, you cannot count the, the, how the state will break down your estate for you if you don't have a plan. This, this Cause I think that was, a, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> is there a myth that comes to the top of your head that sort of people have an assumption or, uh, you know, something like that, that's maybe just not true or half true or anything like that? 
No yeah. pressure. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that I see is um, I don't want to give away my rights. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not ready to give away my rights. I've still got my capacity. I've still got everything. I mean, I don't want to do all this. Mm, um, and, you know, we're not asking, you know, when we do the plan, we're not asking you to give away your rights. You know, mm-hmm. we're asking you to line out what happens if you become incapacitated or pass away. You can, if you want to, go ahead and appoint someone to be able to do things specifically for you now, but that's not necessarily, you know, the way the plan normally works. And so I normally have a myth to bust in terms of, you know, if we're doing a plan for someone or trying to convince someone that they need the plan in place, which uh-huh. they do, making sure that they understand that, you know, they are still their own person and things aren't being taken from them. Yeah, that's huge. I guess I guess I never thought about that as ha- having this – um, I don't know, this feeling of, of losing control yeah. because you've put down on paper what happens when you don't have control. Yeah. Right? It probably feels like that. That's a that's a really, really good one. Yeah. But you you're as you've said throughout uh our conversation, like there, you know, there are certain triggers, if you will, or things that you can put in place to make sure that it doesn't happen until it absolutely has to. Yeah. And normally what that's I'll cool. tell, you know, I I had one a couple of weeks ago, um, and and you know, mom you know, she's in her 80s. She mm-hmm. needed to get a power of attorney in place. She was perfectly, you know, with it, full mm-hmm. capacity. Um, and she said, well, you know, I'm, I, I really don't feel like giving away my rights. And, you know, and I said, well, first of all, you know, you're not. You're just appointing, you know, your daughter to serve, you know, and help you if you need. Mm-hmm. But, hey, listen, if you do this and tomorrow if you don't like it anymore, you call me and we'll change it. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. So, yeah, at least you got something in place, but you can change it if you want to. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. All right, last thing I'm going to ask you. Is there... What is the craziest kind of wildest clause or, uh, I don't know, personal property to be handed down, something like that that you've ever seen? Did some, has someone ever designated the, the family dog or anything like that? As a, oh, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Hey, I mean, pet provisions are a big thing. Okay, talk to me about absolutely. that. I want to hear yeah. this hey, now. I mean, we've got him in my trust. I mean, I... <laughs> Yeah. No pet, way, yeah, really. Pet, yeah, pets are important. I mean, it, you can you can in your trust or estate planning documents, you know, designate specifically who you want your pets to go to, how much money should be left to take care of them. I mean, all of that. Yeah. Wow. I, I, would, I mean, and and I would recommend it. I mean, if they mean something to you, because that makes sure you feel comfortable about it. So I yeah. see that all the time. Okay. All right. I thought I was being funny. Yeah. Turns out, uh, <laughs> I'm, maybe I'm behind on my own estate planning. Yeah. I mean, I always got to think about your pets. I mean, come on now. Well, that's cool, man. That is awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I know you have dedicated a lot of time to informing the members and, and others uh, within that um, agriculture community, especially uh, with Farm Bureau here recently. And I appreciate all the time you've invested in that. Absolutely. Happy to help. Yeah, if you want to find Trav, as I mentioned, uh, he is um, an attorney at Mitchell Williams. He's a a tax and estate planner with a specialty in agriculture. If you want to find Trav, he's at Mitchell Williams Law. Uh, You can call him at 501-688-8898. You can get him at tbaxter at mwlaw.com or simply just find him at mitchellwilliamslaw.com. Uh, all easy ways to to find him uh, or just pick up the phone and call Mitchell Williams and they'll they'll run him down and put you on the phone with him but anyway he's here in Little Rock uh, downtown Little Rock I know he spent some time traveling around the state as well so 
uh, pretty easy, pretty easy to find. Uh, and I highly recommend it. I, I tell you, the session was just really huge um, at, at state convention. And I think it's, I think you're doing, doing good work to help a lot of people. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. you guys. I'm Ken Moore, and this week I am in North Pulaski County, kind of uh, in between Jacksonville and Cabot is where we are, and I am visiting with uh, Miss Mary Bone, uh, and Mary is uh, a produce grower, and uh, she's going to share her story with us today on this edition of AgCast, and Mary, thank you for inviting me up to see your new property here. I know this isn't where you live, but uh, you're moving from uh, Monroe County and Fargo, and where is Fargo? Uh, It's about three miles north of Brinkley. Okay. What happened is I worked in Little Rock uh, for over 40 years. I originally lived in Phillips County down near Helena. Yeah. Okay. After working in Little Rock for over 40 years, I decided that I wanted to start farming. And it brought to my attention really really to my attention when I saw the commercial on televisions offering John Deere tractors, no interest, no down payment. But try to make a long story short, I'll just say what happened is I ended up going to Fargo, Arkansas, and at Arkansas Land and Farm Corporation, I talked to Dr. Kevin King there, and he offered to lease me some land. Uh, When he offered to lease me the land, he offered it at zero dollar. So that's when I started my farming career in 2013. I started as a new and beginning farmer. So from there, I have worked there for seven years, built my farming skills. I learned all about using a high tunnel, how to control temperatures in there, how to grow vegetables, make sure that the watering system is there for your vegetables. Well, everything was going well, and then, of course, the coronavirus hit. Yeah. Last year, a year ago. A year ago. So at that time, uh, we lost uh, our market. Mm. So the market shut down. So that kind of challenged me. But I didn't give up on things. I still kept trying down there with no market. But um, the opportunity presented itself for me to come, become, sorry, for me to become a landowner. Something that I had wanted basically all of my life. Because as a child, growing up with my grandparents, I saw my papa. We lived out on other people's land. We never had our own, but we were fortunate enough that they would let papa have land and to grow a truck patch. So during that time when he grew those truck patches, I was able to work out there with Papa. And we were able to have good fresh vegetables to eat during those times. And I didn't know at the time how healthy those things were for me. But being around my Papa Mm -hmm. and 
if you're listening to me, I just want you to think back to the person that raised you and think about something that they did with you that has touched you for the rest of your life. Maybe just one thing. And that one thing was my grandfather working out there, growing a truck patch, growing different vegetables. And like I said, there were times when he grew peanuts so we could have a snack. He grew popcorn so we could have a snack. But he grew the major um, excuse me, he grew the major things too, like your peas and corn and things like that and watermelons. But that is the reason that I hold on to the farming like I do, the vegetable farming. And over the 40 years, my husband, (laughs) he says I'm so country, but I wanted to grow things. So he made me a little 8 by 10 garden spot in the back of the the house. And I, I did. I grew a few things there. But it just never felt like what I really wanted to do. So after working so long in the corporate world, I decided that I would start the farming in 2013. So this is a little of the background of why I do this. So this year, after the virus... I still wanted to move forward. So what happened is I had an opportunity to purchase some land which would bring me closer to home in Little Rock because uh, Fargo is 90 miles from Little Rock. So this land is in Pulaski County, which is just a 30-minute drive from home in traffic, which is so wonderful. But the wonderful thing about it is, it's my land. Mm -hmm. It's a dream that I never thought in my lifetime would come true. I never thought I would be a a landowner. Excuse me. It's quite all right. It's quite all right. This is exciting. But I do. I'm happy for you. I own two and a half acres in North Pulaski County. Now, my dream, it's like I woke up out of this dream and I own this. Now, I have to move to my planning phase. And right now, you know, I have the property. There's things that needs to be done. I have a garden spot, but I need extra soil and bring in soil and to prepare for the spring. So right now... I'm working very hard, my husband helping me each day that we can be out here in this type of weather. We're working very hard to prepare so I can have vegetables for the spring, by the, uh, start my vegetable farming by the spring and hopefully have things ready by May of this year. Well, let's go back just a little bit and tell me what all you were able to grow there at Fargo. And uh, what your market was, who your market was before the virus shut it down. I know a lot of truck farmers, a lot of produce growers, thankfully, we were still able to have uh, some connection with the public through 
farmers markets, even though they had to follow the restrictions, you know, social distancing, the whole thing. They were still able to sell what they were able to grow. And more and more consumers want to go to people like you instead of going to the grocery store. So tell us about kind of what you had there in Fargo. Okay, in Fargo, I grew a variety of vegetables. Uh, In the spring, uh, early spring, you're still able to grow your greens. And when I say greens, uh, we, my husband at the market, which was Hillcrest Market here in Little Rock, they started to call him the green man because I was growing so many greens and he was bringing them to the market. And when I say greens, I mean kale greens. I grew a red Russian kale, a Siberian kale, and a Tuscany, uh, which they call a dinosaur kale. I grew three different types of kale. I grow collards. I grow... uh, cabbage, a red and a green. I also grow um, arugula. So that's kind of a variety of the greens that I grow, which are in the springtime. But as it moves on, and uh, you know that Arkansas is seasonal on what you can grow, we also grow squash, cucumbers, watermelons, peas, corn, uh, just uh, uh, several different things. And I also grow spinach, too. So uh, those are some of the items that we grow, tomatoes. um, And most of our customers, which is very unusual, uh, a lot of people sell red tomatoes. But we had a lot of customers that wanted green tomatoes. Well, they love fried green tomatoes. Yes, I learned that, and that has been one of a, a great market for us. So, uh, working at the uh, selling at the Hillcrest Market was just wonderful. And when it closed down, uh, about the time it closed down, well, you have to realize if your market closes down and doesn't open up for two weeks or three weeks, uh, vegetables are so time sensitive. Yes. And you can lose them. So you have to have your market where you go each week with your fresh vegetables. So right now I'm still preparing and hoping that the markets with the social distancing, with our mask and everything, hoping that we can be prepared to start in some markets around town in Little Rock. Uh, I even have heard that uh, they are opening a market in North Little Rock at Agenta. So uh, hopefully I will be invited to that market. So I'm not going to give up. It's a challenge, but I've always tried to turn that challenge into an opportunity. And I'm still planning to do that. Well, I know last summer uh, it was late in getting open, but even downtown, uh, the Little Rock Farmer's Markets uh, down at the River Market mm-hmm. opened up, and uh, they had all the protocols, people wearing masks, but they did have been the, the farmers come. They had the vendors come, and you could sell, so that might be another opportunity as well, because people have become accustomed to going downtown whether it's the river market whether it's argenta here in north little rock or uh, hillcrest you know we have several here in the metro area where you can sell your produce you know wouldn't that be a great thing that would be wonderful wonderful and um just thinking about the challenges that we've had i'm thinking about other small farmers like me 
I know that we're all challenged, and I'm hoping and praying that everything will, well, we know everything is going to get better. That's just my attitude. Throughout my life, looking at my past, I know things will get better. They have gotten better, and they will continue to get better. This is Arkansas Land and Farm uh, at Fargo, Arkansas. How he helped me was he listened to my story. When I walked in, uh, I told him I wanted to be a farmer. And I guess because I'm a lady, people kind of look at you strange and think, you don't want to do that. It's digging in the dirt and it's hard work. It's intense work. But I know that because of my grandpa. And I saw him do it with a mule, a plow, and the scraps on his back and a hoe. That was what he had to work with. And I know myself that I can do it with all of the equipment that we have now that moves all you have to do is got it but dr king sit there and he listened to my story of being raised by my grandfather and he told me that he had this idea that he would let me have the land to start farming so he leased me 30 acres of land a lot of land for vegetable farming but He leased me the land. And you can't farm without land. Right, right. And that's the major, major thing that he did. Not only did he lease me the land, he opened himself up and his organization to me for any assistance. When I say assistance, I mean like uh, knowledge. They put on uh, training classes. They have agronomists come to meetings and uh, they schedule meetings so you can learn about the soil, the pHs of the soil. These are the things that he did to assist me. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. My grandfather, I never heard the word pH and soil test when I was working with him because he didn't know about those things. So it's a new day, a new generation of of training and getting you to understand the soil. And you need to know these things in order to be able to raise vegetables. I I learned that now that I have uh, blueberry trees on the new property that I purchased, that the blueberries need a pH of five, not seven and a half. And some of the vegetables that I grow, they want the pH to be six and above. So... The agronomist that he brought in, the training that he brought in, is what helped me to get to the point to where I could grow my vegetables, knowing what they need, knowing which vegetables need certain amount of water even. There are vegetables, they're different, they're different, but they're all in the food group. (laughs) They might be in the same environment but my greens may need more water than my beets. So these are the things that you can learn in the training that they gave me at the organization. And these are the things that I learned to utilize that made me produce beautiful vegetables. And uh, it's okay if you're growing something, but you don't want it to just 
grow. You want it to thrive. You want it to be so beautiful that when that person walks in that market, you want them to look at your vegetable and say, wow, I want some of that. Mm-hmm. And I credit Dr. King and his organization for teaching me about the soil and things that I need to do to feed my vegetables so they can produce over and over. And what you got to realize is you've got some vegetables that uh, they produce for several months. And you got to keep the soil right, uh, the pH right. You've got to give them enough water. You can't just put them there and say, I put you here, grow. No, no. You've got to take care of it. And I credit them with helping me. Also, my grandfather that took care of his without all of this. I didn't know at the time that people say it's organic now. But we had chickens. And I realize now that when Papa was saving the chicken manure... He was using it in our garden. It was a fertilizer. But like I say, as a little girl, I didn't realize that. But now, uh, using those things uh, will give you a certification of becoming organic. So I think we was a little organic back then, and I just didn't know. I didn't know. But he used this type of thing, and what I learned from Dr. King and what I've learned from my grandfather, I've merged the two together and it's working for me. It's working for my vegetables. And I plan to continue learning. Uh, I plan to, there's classes. He will still, Dr. King still offers classes and I get the brochures from him when they're having the classes and the training. And I still plan to continue to go to some of his training classes you never stop learning you never stop but it's all changing and technology has improved the way that uh, produce growers can grow crops year round here in arkansas 20 30 years ago you couldn't grow produce in the winter time we you know we but, but now we learn the benefit of having plastic and you're doing that right here i mean you bought this two and a half acres you planted some wonderful looking greens just a few months ago right. and they're thriving right now yes sir i uh i planted uh some spinach and some kale yeah. and uh like i said i had to come into this soil and I had to bring a little extra in because this, the farm that I bought hadn't been used in about four years. So I just wanted to do a test run to see and get the feel of the soil. So I was able to plant some greens in uh, September, late September, 1st of October. And I've been able to grow uh, some spinach, uh, some cabbage. Uh, cabbage, some collard greens. So all in all, I think that uh, the vegetables uh, will grow and be wonderful during this period of time if I can get the high tunnels. The high tunnels will, I guess I'm trying to say with the high tunnel, you will be able to grow produce year round. And that's hopefully in the future, I will be able to get a high tunnel and continue to grow 
year-round. Well, once you fertilize the soil and get it cultivated here and get it worked up, uh, high tunnel technology is like a greenhouse. And, and it's like, you know, you have the heat. So you can grow in the wintertime because it's insulated and you have the heat. And then you'll have to get your fir- your uh, irrigation, of course, going. But you know all about that. <laughs> so you're using it. You've already got it right here. That is a big plus. That is a big plus. You've got underground irrigation right here, I guess, huh? Yes, sir. The farmer before me had our irrigation in. I haven't turned the water on yet. We've got to uh, make sure to test to see if there's any leaks or anything in. But irrigation without irrigation you're not going to be a farmer not and not here not because if you've got 10 days of 90 degree weather and no water on your vegetables they can't survive they'll burn up they will burn up so a big plus when i looked at this property i just got so excited a big plus the water, the irrigation is here. Another plus is the fencing. Mm-hmm. You have to think about our little predators. <laughs> we have a lot of deer that like tomatoes and greens. Yes, uh, we've got raccoons and yeah. and and you have to think about all of these uh, risk risks that you take when you're doing this. And uh, they love vegetables. Uh, and if possible they're going to get to your vegetables and you walk out here one day and all of a sudden they were so beautiful yesterday and the deer has come in overnight and and you it's gone it's gone so (laughs) you have to just say okay think about it it's not that you really did something wrong it's just that you didn't do enough to prevent them. So then you think about it, what else can I do to make this better? The fencing makes a huge difference. Huge difference. So I came from an area where there was a flyover, row crops. And you have to think about that as a vegetable farmer. Because some of the things that they use in row crops will destroy your your vegetables. So being here uh, at this farm, and like I said, when I looked at this and just thinking about that I can own this, I, I could own it, and I do own it now. I do own it now, but looking at that the fencing was already here, that I, I didn't have to work against flyovers with the sprays and my next door neighbors and not saying anything against row crops because without them they produce a lot of food for people and uh but just being up here you don't have you're protected from it i'm protected from it i'm protected from it with my vegetables i won't walk out here and because of something that uh they had to use to save their crop and I couldn't expect that you don't save your crop and and let uh, me to let mines go. But they have to save their crops. They have to. And you can't move down there among them and tell them they can't do what they need to do. Well, our large commercial 
crop farmers have to have weed protection. Yes, sir. They have to deal with weeds. They have to deal with pests. Yes, sir. But you deal with it in different ways, yes. you know. And uh, and I see you even have some neighbor sheep right up here outside the fence. Aren't they cute? Aren't they cute? <laughs> yes, sir. We uh, it, And that is... A part of what I'm hoping to make happen up here is just such a special place. And I have to keep saying, but it's mine now. Yes. And I, I, it's, uh, it's a special place. There are sheep there. I've got neighbors that are with the turkeys. And uh, it is, to me, an ideal place for a young person to come and to visit and to see the sheeps next door, or their cows in the pasture next door. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, once I've got everything organized and all of my planning and everything done, I can, you know, open my farm up to visitors. And I'm hoping for that. But that's the plan in the works. I love it. I love it, Mary. And I like to see how this is terraced here uh it slopes down to a creek down below and uh, you'll have good runoff i mean you're not going to have a lot of standing water and so i think you and ricky have a little work ahead of you here for the next several months yes sir but uh, i love it's a work in progress as you say and talk about how you want to take this building behind us here and turn it into a demonstration kitchen okay um i've That was one of the big selling points to me when I saw that building and I walked inside and I looked and I thought, one of my, uh, here I go with the dream again, but is to have a certified kitchen. And in that certified kitchen, I'm hoping that I can get to a point to where I can invite people in to learn how to cook the vegetables I grow right here on site. And my thing is, if you don't know how to use a vegetable, how to fix this vegetable for your child, Mm -hmm. you're not going to buy it. True. And um, seeing the vegetable, and I, I would love for parents to come out with their children and see us pick the vegetables, even let them be able to pick the vegetables out of the garden. We bring it to their kitchen, wash it, clean it up, and prepare it, and let them taste it. Uh That is something that I'm hopeful for in this building back here. Of course, anyone that grows vegetables know that they're very time sensitive. If you pick in 90 degree to 100 degree weather, you need to get them in the cool as fast as possible. So this building behind me, uh, in the back of the building, there is a space that we're going to be able to insulate and prepare for us a cooler that we can walk from the vegetable garden here immediately and take our vegetables back there put them in the cool so they'll be maintained and they won't wilt if you know if you're a vegetable farmer then you understand really what I'm saying here this is something that's a necessity uh, so sure. this preservation food preservation yes sir so this building uh, is going to be 
what I would use, hopefully, to draw people in. Uh, of course, I've got a lot of work to do there, too, as as you just said, we've got work here on, on the ground, but I'm planning to utilize this building. I also have enough space in there that I could have a small teaching room, a classroom, so... Once we had the class, the training and everything, we'd have the certified kitchen. And one thing else that, that I want to say for a certified kitchen, there are times that you're going to grow vegetables and you're not going to sell everything that you grow. Oh, you won't, no. That, and, and you just have to be prepared for that. And the way that I'm preparing for that is a value-added So if I've got beets and I don't sell them all this week, then I can do the canning process. There you go. I can can those beets and you can, uh, if they're certified kitchen and and the health department comes out and certified, you're you're allowed, from my understanding, I don't want to misquote, to uh, still sell those vegetables in those jars or whatever but uh, but those are things that i'm thinking for this building on the property and like i said (laughs) i not only own the property i have a building on the property that i'm going to be able to utilize for a certified kitchen and to me that is a massive step in my plan my grandmother, I was so young at that time, uh, I, and, and I guess everybody said I was a tomboy because <laughs> I wanted to be out in the field with Papa instead of in the kitchen with my grandmother. So I didn't do a lot of canning and, and everything. And my grandmother got sick on me when I was really young. And uh, so I spent a lot of time out in the field working with Papa. So, but my grandmother, when she was up able to, she did that. She canned. Yeah, they learned that way. That's how they grew up. That's, yes. you know, they put back. Yes. You put back for the winter months when things are going to be difficult. You can't walk out and pull squash or cucumbers in the middle of the winter. No way. You have got to utilize skills to save them for when you're going to need them. For on days when it's so cold that I remember the times that we had to stay in in the house most of the time. Sometimes because it would be so cold. Mm -hmm. So we had this old wooden stove. And I laugh about it now because... They use, and I know some people probably have never heard of this, we had sweet potatoes that Papa had grew, and he would go under the house in the cellar and get those sweet potatoes because, you know, he covered them with warm blankets so they wouldn't freeze through the winter. So we'd be in the house on a cold day with one pot belly wood stove, and he would take those sweet potatoes, and he would take the hot ashes. Huh. And put them over those sweet potatoes and bake them. That's my grandpa. I just did not realize the things that he was an entrepreneur. And I didn't, didn't real. he couldn't read or write or anything like that. But he, he just, he had so much common knowledge that helped us to survive. But when I think about some of the things that he did, like I say, those hot ashes and those coals, he would take them and cover over that sweet potato and bake it. That's how they survived 
over the years. Uh, they didn't have a lot of money. Papa Papa worked for a quarter a day sometimes, he told me, you know. But he ditch bank or anything that he could cut to do would help us survive. He hunted. He fished. These things, is this is how I lived. And my husband will say, Mary, you just grew up so many years behind your time. You shouldn't have experienced that. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. And it makes me the person that I am today. Your environment should cause development. And I developed a little bit different from him because he kind of grew up in the city and everything. So I developed different from his his ideas and my ideas and, and digging in the dirt. He just doesn't care anything at all for it. But I love it. I love being able to make things grow and produce. I love it. We'll never lose the need for that. We'll never lose the need for that. Mary, I've loved this conversation. I want to, I'm going to come back in about three to four months when you have this ground working. And uh, I don't know if you have your high tunnels in place by April or May, but still, you'll have something growing here. I should have something growing. And my plans are to have something growing uh, as soon as possible, even if I have to, uh, as a matter of fact, I'll be starting my seedlings uh, the first of February, I have two small little hot houses <laughs> that I use that my my husband has made up for me that with the little uh, heaters to keep my vegetables warm to start my seedlings off. Okay. So I'm planning. I'm hopeful. Hopefully, I will have something growing uh, ready to sell by May. I'm hoping that I'll have. So uh, if, if you come back in March, if the weather is decent at all, you should see something growing. I'm hoping. I'm oh, I have no doubt we could have a kale salad right now. Yes, we could. We <laughs> could have a kale, including kale and spinach. Uh-huh. Uh, we could have a spinach salad, spinach and kale salad right now. Now, I'm a spinach man myself. My daughter is trying to get me used to kale. I, she's, she loves it. We've been eat, they've been, my daughter's been eating kale for years. Uh-huh. It's just a little different than spinach and cabbage, but uh, I'm learning. You know? Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. And you also have your tr- your uh, vineyard here that your the previous owner on the property had grew some muscadine grapes here. Are you going to try to see if you can re- restore those muscadines? Yes, I am. As a matter of fact, I have been in contact with uh, UAPB College in Pine Bluff, uh, Dr. English there, okay. and he has already uh, had someone to come out and look at my muscadines. As a matter of fact, he told me that I had muscadines, and on the very far end there, I have a few uh, grapevines. So he is, uh, Dr. Nuji came out, and he said that he would bring some of the students out from the college uh, during the spring because the tree, the muscadine vines needed to be pruned. And of course, I have no experience with that, but I'm thankful to UAPV that they're going to come out here and all of the fruit trees, uh, the uh, blueberry bushes, all of those, they're going to give me some training on those. They're going to, he said they would prune them for me. So hopefully, um, like I say, I have no experience with these, uh, with the muscadines, but I'm looking forward to training and being able to um, 
produce muscadines. You've purchased a wonderful spot here in North Pulaski County. Thank you so much. That's what I think. I, I mean, I just, I think it has so much potential. I just think that I know it'll take time, but anything worth having is worth working hard for. And I've been working for years. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I keep thinking that it's all going to work out. And I just pray that my husband and I can keep our health. But I feel like it helps my health to be out here in this garden. Yes. Working and growing things. I just love it. I have to say with my husband, there is no way that I could have done all of this without him. He supports me. Anything I need done, the physical part... He does it for me. He does it, and uh, he's worked on all of this around here. It'll just take us some time, but we're going to continue to work on it to try to get everything situated with the kitchen and then the garden and being able to uh, do the value added. I'm looking forward to working through it. I really am. I know you are, and I want to, when they open up later this year, uh, visit you at the Hillcrest Market. Once they get started going again, because I'm going to buy some of your greens and your tomatoes. I am a tomato man. All right. (laughs) I want to buy some Marybone tomatoes. Well, I will be glad to sell you some Marybone tomatoes. I grow two types. I grow a celebrity and a Juliet. The Juliet is more like a Roma tomato. And the celebrities is the slicing tomato, which, uh, like I say, we have a lot of people that buy the green slicing celebrity tomato from us yeah well nothing better than a good arkansas grown tomato uh, here locally listen mary thank you for your time and showing this off to me and uh now that i know where you are we're gonna come back here in a few months please do please do i i would love for you to come back and even hopefully if you don't leave arkansas and uh and uh just come by and visit with us i'd love that love that Thank you very much. We've been visiting with Mary Bone, and I'm going to give uh, props to her husband, Ricky Bone, who's helping her uh, develop this property, uh, get it ready to go, put it in production. And it's just a dream come true. And we love telling these uh, wonderful stories like Mary's. Thank you so much for your time. You're so very welcome. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing you back for another visit. We speak with Mary Bone this week on Arkansas AgCast. Welcome to AgCast. I'm Ken Moore, and today I have the pleasure, the extreme pleasure, of traveling up to the home of Dr. Andrew Sharpley, just uh, on the outskirts of Rogers, Arkansas, up here in Benton County on a beautiful day. And and Dr. Sharpley, he's pretty much kind of uh, uh, stepping down from his post uh, as a distinguished professor in the Department of Crop, Soil, and Environmental Sciences for the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station and has done some outstanding work uh, here for the University of Arkansas uh, and, and, and Division of Ag over the last, uh, I guess, 15 years here, Dr. Sharpley. So thank you for inviting us and welcoming us to your home. Well, thank you very much, Ken. Uh, good to be, glad you're here. Um, at least you got the right, brought the good weather with you. <laughs> we did that. We've just had some rain, and you had some uh, torrential rain here just a little over a week ago, didn't you? I think we're looking out over a, over the lake here outside your home, and uh, it's it's fairly high today. 
Yeah, it is. It likes gone up about five or six feet in the last uh, several days. It just um, it really shot up. We had a lot of a lot of runoff, which is uh, kind of interested in us. My area, you kind of look out the window and you see water moving where you never thought it would, and that's the way it is. That's the way a lot of work we do. You got to be out there and watch it, watch it running off. But boy, did it it rain pretty hard up here for a while. Uh, Dr. Sharper, we just want to have a visit with you now and let you reflect on your career. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners to, uh, to this edition of AgCast, tell us how you uh, grew up, if you will, over in uh, England, in Manchester, and, and eventually uh, your path, once you uh, got out of school, kind of led you over here to, uh, eventually over here to northwest Arkansas. Yeah. Um, originally, I was from uh, Manchester, England. Uh, which is probably more famous for soccer teams or uh, uh, music, but um, it uh, I wasn't from a farming background, but I had some relatives, un- uncles, aunts that had um, farms, and we'd go out and visit. Um, but I really wasn't interested in ag. I originally went to university uh, to get a degree in marine biology, which didn't really pan out. That really wasn't. Um, I realized a lot quickly that there was a lot of other people, and there wouldn't be probably a whole lot of opportunities at the end of the day. So then I decided, um, having taken a course in geomorphology or soil uh, soils basically um, really uh, invigorated by the teacher um, and that just got me hooked in and from there then on I switched to a degree in soils uh, soil science and um, then got to um, an opportunity to work in New Zealand and um, after getting a PhD in, in water quality and soil, soil science again um, came came over to the US and landed in Oklahoma so um, from that then I was looking at working with ARS. I worked with ARS for a oh, good over 25 years almost. Um, I was from about 1980 to, to, to 2006. And so um, eventually became a citizen in Muskogee and um, got on permanent with ARS um, and um, was able to work there in, in a place called Durant, Oklahoma. And um, again, it was uh, working there with uh, some good people, uh, great different different outlooks um some very basic physics people as well as some outdoors more applied and so i learned a lot and worked with different team different people and really um benefited from their knowledge and and and, you know had the foresight to um pick up on it or at least you know embrace and and learn from learn from it and one of the learning lessons was um working with a guy called sam smith who, who was um his office was next door to mine, and I'd go in and give... He was my basic, my supervisor, so I'd go give ideas about what um, I wanted to do, and I'd <clears throat> run in there all enthusiastic. I think this is a great a great idea, this, 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 and this, and, I'm, you know, it's really interesting, and we should do this. And he'd kind of look a little bit, think around, and then kind of say, well, interesting's not enough. Uh, why do you want to do it? And I'd just kind of trudge back, kind of, a little bit dejected and then realized, you know, <clears throat> why you had to do it was was important. And I think that was kind of a, a, a really a changing point in, in making the work, justifying why you were going to do it. I mean, it, it has become obviously important, more important now with funding and different types of more competitive to justify it. But at that time, it really was a good learning lesson, which I kind of took on. And then... Um, 
Um, from there, I, I had the opportunity to, to transfer to um, ARS in University Park, which is the, um, on the campus of Penn State, still with, a, with ARS. So I had a government position, but I was on campus. and I, I thought I'd um, landed in heaven, really. I got the best of both worlds, uh, government work, um, which had some security. It had some restrictions, but, you, you know, graduate students and other students to work with, and um, it was a great environment. Um, and again, teams. Again, I worked with different people that um, had different ideas that challenged me. Um, wasn't comfortable at times being challenged, but you know, it it eventually sunk in. Um, and um, then, you know, it was getting to be well. You want to keep doing research, or do you want to do administration? And just getting more pushed towards that. And then an opportunity arose here in um, Fayetteville with the university, and um, the rest is this history, so to speak. I came up here, interviewed with Milo Schultz, Dr. Schultz at the time, um, and a few other people, and went back and. Um, I'm lucky enough to get the position and, and work up here, and that was in 2006. And Arkansas is very grateful that uh, your career path led you here because uh, you've become a great friend of the Arkansas farmer and rancher here, and uh, and and then you've made some great relationships. And, and and you said it's all about teams; it's all about working with others, and uh, the work that you do. Talk about the critical importance of your research. And why in this day and era that we live in, in uh, food production, uh, the type of research that you uh, conduct uh, with your teams is so important uh, to document and provide sound science for what the farmers and ranchers are doing. Yeah, I think, I, you know, when I moved here, um, it was probably um, looking back, it was I was in the right place at the right time. And again, it, it it's probably been that way in in many ways where I've been, but again, on on the other the other side of that coin is well, you you notice the opportunities and you take make the most of them and and you grab them, and I think that's part of the key. But um, I think coming here, I um, I was able to uh, give enough latitude um, by the administration to give enough rope, and I could hang myself or, or not, and obviously I didn't, but. I realized pretty quickly that that um, I had this opportunity. I'd done a lot of basic research. I wanted to be more applied. Um, I had the opportunity to, to you know, meet and, and then start working with Mike Daniels, who's with Extension. So we, we've worked uh, along with other people. But, in, you know, it, it's been a good relationship. Um, it's similar to one with in the Discovery Farm program in Wisconsin, where Dennis Frame and Fred Manison were some similar. That Dennis was an extension, Fred was research, and so it it um, again it, it was a um, um, a good opportunity. But at that time, there was an increasing awareness with uh, the litigation with Oklahoma and Arkansas, uh, putting farmers at risk. Um, there were a lot of finger pointing. They wanted to have TMDLs. They were looking at watershed management plans, which meant you had to have data. But um, there was there was increasing um, concerns about water quality at that time. The Gulf of Mexico hypoxia was a driver. Um, it's a long way away, but. Um, EPA started doing some spot checks, uh, but the, the outcome really was that farmers wanted to know more about what was going on on their own 
um, land, whether they were part of the problem or not. They didn't have that data. And so we, um, I was very fortunate to, to start working with um, different groups, but Farm Bureau was one of those. They opened a lot of doors. Um, we went, we took a, a, a group up, Mike and I, to, to Wisconsin to show them the program. They talked with the farmers up there, the producers, the organizers, and this type of... Um, came back and said, this is something we, we need. Um, and I think it's um, it's been a great opportunity um, I, because farmers, um, what we've learned is they're all good stewards of the land, that they um, they want to do a good job. They want to know that they're doing the right thing, and if they're part of the problem, they want to do something to to rectify that. And so, um, I, I think it, you know it, it's been um, a good, a great experience, and in, in being able to work with with growers and feel like you're having an impact, um, feel like you're providing something that's rigorous and scientific, um, but also just making those relationships or those um, I want to say f- friendships, but um, with with those farmers and understanding what they're going through uh, to get a better ba- base or background of your own work you know what's what pressures are they going through you know a lot of times we do our research our science and we say well, you know well farmers should just go out and implement this but when you talk to farmers and hear what day to day they have to do what constraints whether it's funding whether it's time whether it's labor whatever it is it really resonated with me that we've got to make what we do practical and applicable to to what a farmer can or can't do and if we don't when we're, we're wasting our time and so i think that's something else that i think i, I i've really gained from uh, this is trying to understand you know that, that farmers can and can't do some things and that we need to be relevant in what we we do we can't be just pie in the sky all the time um you know, so I think um, each of these different people were, were um, going up to Wisconsin. Gene Farr came with us. Um, very quiet, but when he speaks, you, you listen. You know, you always him and, and others. I think uh, Bill Hawk would be another one that would open a statement when you're standing there and they're going to ask you a question. Maybe one of the leadership meetings. Um, I'm just a dumb farmer, but but but. And then you you realize you just got to keep you got to keep be careful now because you know you're going to get a really intelligent question, you know. Um, uh, and again, it, it's just something that's it's uh, it, it's great that um, this is um, humbleness, I think, in a way, um, with them. But they they're thinking two or three times steps ahead of you at times, and we've seen where they're they're ahead of us but they just need the data to show that it's ahead of our research um again gene would sit in in a way remember waiting in the airport to come back and he'd be sitting over by himself in the seat reading the uh, financial times um, and it just struck you that these are just very diverse backgrounds very um uh, knowledgeable but don't really um it's it's hidden and and that's that's great but it's it's um it it helps you realize um that you i think well it doesn't help you realize being able to do that means you're working with real people not just a a farm or a farmer Mm -hmm. and i think that's really been a, a, a you know benefit to me
and Bill Hawk, I know his dairy farm uh, right up here, not far from not far from where we are right now. They uh, want to make sure they protect those watersheds, don't they? Yeah, they do. They do. Um, he now has a. I think he has a new farm up on in Gentry. So he's, he uh, he has a farm now um, there. He's ex- increased his herd size. He's got. Um, uh, he's trying to do some rotational grazing, and so we're helping him with that. Not just. Um, through discovery, but that other people in the university that are, are coming up with ideas um, to do that in the ag e- economics departments. And so he's very um, progressive, I think, at l- listening to people um, and then doing what he thinks is right. Um, but, you know, again, there's a little difference between people, and that's that's great. Um, um, Bill calls a spade a spade, and you know you've got to be, you've got to be on, on your game when, you, when you're around bill or, or these other people that if you start to think that you're trying to fob or um, um brush aside something they're gonna let you know pretty quickly and so it's it's i think a lot of it is this credibility and integrity in maintaining that and um you know working to try and provide them with with answers in the culture that we're living in today, and it's, it's, we've always needed to be good environmental stewards, and our farmers and ranchers have been, but uh, uh, to provide the proof, the evidence, the, the verifiable data, I guess, and I called it sound science earlier, we've used that term a lot through the years, that's what you can do and provide through your research, but these farmers are willingly now participating in the Discovery Farm Program, and that allows them to have that data that they didn't have before, we implemented this program a number of years ago. Share the story, if you will, about uh, the Marley Poultry Farm up here outside of Elkins, and how because he's in the, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the White River uh, watershed there, or potentially part of the, the runoff could flow into the the White River, uh, and he needed to have a discovery farm on his uh, a poultry farm. Yeah, um, Bill's a good example. I mean, sorry, um, Jeff is a good example. Jeff Marley and the, the whole family. Um, they've um, we've had uh, one of the one of his couple of his daughters worked in the university or uh, took got degrees and they've helped us with some some of the type of work that you're doing with um, um, doing virtual videos of, of all of the farmers and so um, Jeff's been always very cooperative. But he he's on a pretty well traveled road, Highway 16, which goes out to the Pig Trail. It's um, east of Elkins, um, and um, he's very visible, um, and he knows that um, people are going to, uh, if they see something that they don't like, um, whether it's right or wrong, they're going to let somebody else know, and it, it happens. It happens all the time. So he he wants to be a good steward. He wants to be a good. Uh, uh, he wants to represent that the poultry farmers well because he's so visible from from the road he's got 10 10 houses um he wanted to um we were led on to him by um johnny gonzalez as an extension and steve ignite who was with it was with farm bureau um they said you, you should go out and talk to jeff um and we went out and talked to jeff and you know mike you know mike daniels probably he's he's pretty talkative um but Jeff can out talk you know people but you, you gotta listen he's he's um he knows what he's doing he's uh, we go out there you see and people have been taking trips out there and they'll say those are the best looking cows they're they're always looking uh they got glossy they're um well well fed and um but so he's doing it right i mean so he he's very unassuming but he does um 
um, make sure that what he's doing is is right. Do you want to just okay? So he, he he's um, make sure that it, you know he wants to know what he was do, what he's doing at the time. EPA were doing some spot checks, so looking at water water runoff from around poultry houses. Was it a problem or not? In the Chesapeake Bay, they said it was, and I think there was a a, a lawsuit at the time. Hmm. Um, and they call it a fan and feathers problem, and, and Tyson were very concerned about you know what's going to happen. Anyway, that led to some. Well, is it a problem or not on, on my farm? This was Jeff, and we set up some equipment, put some um, monitoring there. We had some funds from ANRC at the time to start up a discovery program. He was one of our first. Put up the monitoring equipment, which collects rain whenever it happens, collects runoff, and then we get the samples and collect the analysis. And so he wanted to know what the runoff was. The one one of them was going; some of it was going into a pond. And we want to see what's going in and what's coming out of that pond. One of them was going onto a pasture, which, like you say, was going into the white, which goes into Beaver uh, Lake, which is a drinking water source for I think it's probably well over half a million people now. Um, and so he was very um, concerned about, in, you know, that too. Um, we're out there doing the equipment, getting laser leveling it, to get, make sure the grade was where we put our equipment wasn't disturbed and get it just right so um, this grass waterway would work and trap nutrients, we thought. Um, and he, you know, comes watching us. He just shakes his head, gets his tractor, does it without a land laser, and it's perfect to a quarter of an inch. And so... You learn that um, farmers have a um, innate understanding of what's happening on their farm, um, and you listen to them uh, and learn from them. I think that's what we've, Mike and I, have really g- gained from from this this discovery program. But there, uh, that pond traps, you know, 50, 60, 80 percent at times, depends on what the weather. That was dry year, wet year, and that grass waterway also t- does about the same. Um, when it rains really heavy, they're not very effective. But then nothing's going to be effective when we have, you know, huge, as we get more frequently, uh, these really intense storms. It's not annually, not a whole lot more rain, but it just comes in two or three major events. And so they're not going to always work. But what it showed was, as um, you know, they're, they're effective. The value of what we were able to do there, we know what the pond, you know, the pond was already there because he, he, he dug a pond or dug a hole to build up the pads for his poultry houses to get them out of the floodplain of the White River. And that created this pond. And so the grass waterway, again, was already there. He fenced the cattle out for us um, so there would be no other confounding factors and looking at what's going in, coming out. Um, and so we know what's got cost. You know, it didn't cost that much. We know how much it might cost him to fence cattle out, to cut the hay, um, and so we know the cost effectiveness of some of these practices, and that was critical, I think, in moving forward to help you know other farmers decide, you know, how much is it going to cost me if I do this. Um, it also helps NRCS if they want to cost share with these programs. They don't, they don't, won't cost share until they've got data to show that it works too. And so, I think in the long run, we'll provide information to NRCS that will help them maybe. Um, adopt a practice as a conservation 
practice that would then be uh, eligible maybe for, for cost sharing under certain conditions. And so, um, you know, that's been one of the values. The other value is getting uh, people out to take tours, all sorts of tours, uh, sustainability, Walmart sustainability group being out there, uh, City of Fayetteville, different groups have been out there, um, a number of people that go in the chicken houses, usually, obviously, always when there's no chickens in there, um, that have come away saying, I didn't know that's how, how it was. I thought, you know, that they were all in this small little... Anyway, it's, the point is they learn really what was going on on the farm, what his pressures were, what, it, what, he, had to, what he had to work with, um, that they had a totally different view when they've been out there, but the reality is from what they hear or read in the paper. And so I think that was that's something I think Jeff has really uh, um, he saw firsthand, and I think he's he's made the most of that, and he, he enjoys doing that, ed- educating. Uh, you're not going to you know change everybody, but you know there's always one or two, three people that would come away say, "I didn't know this. This is what he did. Um, I didn't know this is how you know how how it happened." Um, and so I think it's that's always I think the same with each of the farms we're, we're on. No question. And you've been able to host. You mentioned some of the tours over the years. Uh, some of the uh, officials uh, that that live and work in Washington, you know, within USDA or EPA, uh, the regulatory agencies, they've been able to get out to our Arkansas farms. Uh, and, and to your point, they actually get out of their offices in the Beltway and learn what these farmers are doing and, and see that verifiable evidence. Sure, yeah. We've had um, quite a few different ones. We had local ones, um, lo- locally uh, senators that, um, here um, that um, take bring out their aides, and you know it's it's good to you know have the have those senators and congressmen out there, but the aides are also very important in educating them too, because some of them are. Uh, I know when I worked in the Chesapeake, um, they uh, don't always. Um, know what's what's on, on farming although they're looking at l- agricultural um, issues or working on agricultural issues maybe it's even legislation and so they um, you know memory comes back to one that we were working with a farmer dairy farmer down there and they um, we brought a couple of people out came out there were aides um, and one person and we're looking at the, these cows in, the, in a pasture and they came up to the fence canosing and um, one of them's uh, was a little bit hesitant and said, will it bite? And, and, and we were just, again, it was one of those things that just, at the time, we thought, oh, my God, gosh, is that, did they say that? And then you realize that the thing that sits, it hits home is that some, and it's no fault of their own, you know, but they haven't been on a farm to see what goes on, but they are important in that process. And so I think... You know, yeah, we've had those types of tours. We've had people uh, come out from from DC. We've had um, NRCS chief. We've had EPA um, chief of water, um, and so we've had people that make decisions um, about or have impact or. Um, on farming legislation or environmental legislation come out and talk to our farmers and I think you know we've been able to foster that 
but I think the farmers have embraced doing that because they get heard. Um, you know, we'll do it. We'll kind of turn a blind eye sometimes. Oh, we'll just turn around and shake our heads when the farmer just has a go at some of these people from D.C. because they want to be heard and they have a gripe and they fit. Um, you know, rightly, rightly so, and they want to just take that opportunity. And so I think it's, you know, it, it works both ways. They need to hear that, um, and I think that's been part of uh, the benefit of, of working here in, in, in Arkansas is um, being able to work with farmers, um, being able to do applied research, being able to apply the knowledge I gained from from within ARS or from my career, but actually. Um, feel like I'm having an impact or, or um, ha- had an impact and um, seeing some of the benefits and some of the changes in people's minds. The Discovery Farm program started, uh, I think you said, with an initial, uh, an original four farmers, uh, four farms, uh, stakeholders. How large has it grown now? I know Mike Daniels is continuing to uh, introduce uh, and, and and get some new uh, farming types of farming operations involved. It was poultry, it was row crop, but uh, what's the future of Discovery Farm, do you think? Um, I think, well, I think the, the future's rosy, I would like to think. Um, we've got some good people that are working on it, and hopefully there'll be some new faculty that come on board that want to see this as a good program that they can take on and do the work, you know, what I was doing. But, I, you know, it's going to go on. Um, I think, the, the, you know, there's so much support now from the farming community, from Farm Bureau, that I, I think it's created a, a certain amount of impetus that it, it, it's got it's got to. I, that's my wishful thinking that it, it's that there's enough support from the farmers. They don't want to see it go away. Um, like like you said, yeah, four farms. Evan Teague was the one that said, yeah, well, we need... You know, he helped us. He came knocking on doors, water districts. He'd set up meetings for us, and we'd go, and every, a lot of people with Tyson, George's, they're poultry integrators. Um, um, it was a lot of... Int- yeah, that's a great program. Um, but when they start to talk about money, then, you know, the butts, and nobody really wanted to be the first to put, you know, the foot in the in it and so um it was there was a lot of for two or three years it was a lot of work trying to get that um initial uh, off the ground anrc did give us some money we got some infrastructure that was the, that was the main i think impetus to get it going the division of ag supports one technician um uh, but i think you know the future will be um it, i think it, it's rosa we have now like 14 farms we branched out from just being livestock in the north the row crop in the south we've got one farm that's look, basically looking at soil health um uh opportunities um we've got a uh, orchard peach orchard farmer that's looking at improved irrigation um, um they have concerns about obviously about water quality that's using in irrigation because of the food that you know because of the produce they uh, they're picking is a pick your own farm mm-hmm. um but that's um that's a new one of the new ones and so you see it's been it's, it's very diverse and so um i think that's again one of the hallmarks uh, that sets us apart from the other states have got this type of program um it was basically dairy driven in in, in um 
in Wisconsin. The other big one is in Minnesota, and that's basically soybean. And, and you know, they've got programs, whether it's soybean um, commodities or whether it's the dairy industry that's providing, or the state's providing funding, permanent funding. In Arkansas, we've been having to go with, you know, grants, and that's not a, not whinging about that, but that's the way it is. But we've had... Um, We've had good support from from Farm Bureau and from um, other commodity groups t- for the program. So I think it's it's um, it's very diverse, and that's one of the benefits. We've got very diverse farms in our program, um, but that you know is a challenge in, in a way. But at least we've got a lot of different now faculty from the university and from Extension from. Uh, other groups like yourself working as a group as a team to be better than any one person and I think you know it's going to be um, I'd like to think it's going to be around for a while I don't see it going away because in the need for sustainability whether it's 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 whether it's cover crops whether it's um, soil health whether it's environmental quality whether it's uh, groundwater depletion um, there's always going to be issues which hopefully the, the discovery farm can stay abreast of and continue to meet those challenges for the farmers. What's the future for Andrew Sharpley now, going forward for yourself? Uh, you've got a beautiful place up here. Uh, we don't want to lose touch with you. Well, um, I guess I'm, I'm almost retired. I'm not quite. I mean, I've still got programs going. I mean, I'm being a little bit more selective. Um, in, in, try to be selective in what I do. Um, I'm very fortunate to, to you know, be here. After I moved here um, about six years ago, um, met Sarah, who's from Jonesboro. And so, you know, we got married here a few years back. Um, she kept me grounded. Um, she kept me real in times where, you know, um, Big Creek gets a little bit down, gets you on top of you of, of uh, questioning or... Um, uh, a little bit despondent at times, but she's been great support, and um, and so life's good. Um, you know, I, I don't have any regrets. I don't have, I can't this thing. You could say um, I don't. I'm very fortunate to be you know, got paid to do what I do, and you know, uh, there's no coulda, shoulda, but didn't in in my looking back. And so, I mean, I'm really, really fortunate to have that support whether it's Sarah whether it's people I've worked with um, to be able to say that and a lot of not everybody can say that and I've been very fortunate um, so what's on the um, on the agenda I think uh, travel okay um, that's um, I know something that Sarah was mentioning um, you know we both want to do that I want to I've got relatives um in England, some other still there, so I want to go see her when we can. You know, when we when this when things start to open up, uh, we want to travel more around the U.S. So we, um, I want to enjoy, you know, what the fruits of our labor, so to speak. So I guess you know, don't want to lose touch with friends, and but um, it's nice sometimes to wake up and you well, what day is it? You know, you know, it's, it's not loss of memory. It's just that it's that retirement gets you that uh, you know um, you get to. Um, know what's important um work was important but it you know it, it it's led to where we are now but um, you know fortunate but um you know beyond that um uh, I, i'm not sure but um just traveling enjoying uh, enjoying the lake and you know gold fishing um and um stay in touch with colleagues and friends 
Well, you've become a wonderful friend of the Arkansas Farmer and Rancher and certainly uh, Arkansas Farm Bureau. And uh, uh, it will be very, very difficult to fill your shoes here with the research station and the Division of Agriculture. We appreciate all you've done on our behalf, Dr. Sharpley, to uh, conduct the research you have to uh, to work with our farmers and ranchers who are so important. Well, thank you, Ken. I know you've um, highlighted uh, many times. You've um, helped us promote uh, to promote it. You opened doors. Um, you got me, I guess there's a picture somewhere, you got me standing in a creek in Fayetteville with waders that didn't fit. They were two, three sizes too small with a suit and tie on. Yeah. Uh, just to be different and it worked uh, so you got um you got me to do some, do some things i didn't think i would do <laughs> i had i got a glass a, a water or something a jug of water i was pouring into it i was hoping it was some sort of liquor but i don't <laughs> not on university property right not on university right. property and it was a little early in the day but um those types of things you know uh have really been supportive of um both mike and i in promoting um, in ways that we couldn't do. And so we appreciate that. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Sharpley. We've been speaking and visiting today uh, on his beautiful deck over here, looking Beaver Lake up here outside of Rogers uh, with Dr. Andrew Sharpley, uh, semi-retired, as he says, distinguished professor in the Department of Crop, Soil, and Environmental Sciences for the University of Arkansas's uh, Agricultural Research Experiment Station. Dr. Sharpley, thanks again. Well, thank you, Ken.